following Dharma talk was presented at Common Ground Meditation Center, Minneapolis, Minnesota, as part of the weekly Dharma series. So, I'm just basically reviewing what we did last month, and just an encouragement then to continue on as you relate to your formal practice, whether you do walking practice or sitting practice, or whatever you consider your spiritual practice, to keep bringing up this resonant wish, may I be happy, and connecting that resonant wish to be happy, to be free, to be liberated with the spiritual activity that you do. And it's not about, I'll do this and then later. Another point the Buddha made was that this, if the practice is authentic, it delivers now, it delivers later, it delivers in the end. So it's not like we have to put off happiness until we've perfected our practice. Now we know there's a lot of pain in practice, confusion. But you see, just the question or just the understanding that this is about happiness, it invites this active quality like, well, is there any happiness with this much tension in the body, with this much confusion in the mind? What would happiness look like with this mind-body experience now? Otherwise, what's going to enter into the mind, get established in the mind, is a very strong belief, I can't be happy until the situation changes, until this doubt goes away, this knee pain goes away, this cold goes away. Think about how many moments in our lives we have mostly unconsciously, but very real, I mean, in a real way, we have uh, sort of manifested this belief that happiness is inappropriate now because this is going on. I can't be happy. And you know, I'm sure you've learned this about the mind. More than anything, our mind wants to fit, follow our set beliefs. Because it it likes security, you know, it likes solid ground. So we have the solid belief that I can't be happy now because I'm sick or because I've got too much to do or nobody loves me or winter's coming or I'm getting older or whatever. Then I guarantee it, you won't be happy, you know. But it's not because we're getting older that we're not happy. We're not happy because the mind has decided it's not appropriate to be happy because this is happening. We stop looking for happiness. Happiness is something, isn't something we create. It isn't even something we get to. It's something we realize by looking for it, by seeing it, by being awake for it. But we have such a, I think arrogance is a good word. We have such an arrogant notion that my life right now is ordinarily unpleasant or ordinarily difficult. So why bother? You know, we're, we're more comfortable with that arrogant belief that I'm not happy than we are with this more positive, assertive view that happiness is here. Happiness is available. Like the Buddha says, the mind is radiant and pure. 
it's only obscured because of visiting defilements, visiting negative mental tendencies. So now we're moving on to the next chapter of Jack Hornfield's book. This particular section in the middle of his book, The Wise Heart, is all about the three wholesome, unwholesome roots. It's a really useful, I find, a very useful map of the mind. <clears throat> so I recommend that you just memorize it. It's just like, uh, you know, if we're living out in nature, we kind of want to know the basic way things come and go, like the basic way the weather moves, how to anticipate what might happen, how to read the different signs. It's the same thing with, you know, we have a mind, we should be able to understand it, just be a basic literacy with the mind. And that's really what the three, this map that the Buddha used, the three wholesome and unwholesome roots. Because this chapter is on aversion. And the earlier chapter was on craving or greed. And the chapter before that was on the three personality types. All of these have to do with the three wholesome and unwholesome roots. So the unwholesome roots, the three expressions of the mind misunderstanding its reality, misunderstanding its experience in a moment, when our mind is misinterpreting, misperceiving experience, one of these three, or more than one of these three things will manifest. Craving, aversion, and delusion, or some kind of denial or disconnection, distraction. Okay? Craving we talked about a couple weeks ago, or actually it was in August when we covered that chapter. You go back and listen to the talks online. If you weren't here in August and you want to hear about that. For the next several weeks we'll talk about aversion. And then later, probably November, late October, we start talking about delusion. As just an ordinary ebb and flow of what moves in the mind. Our mind is conditioned. It's conditioned with aversion and with non-aversion, thankfully. Kindness and compassion and tenderness, gentleness. It's conditioned with craving and non-craving, generosity and simplicity and contentment and renunciation of letting go, an ability to let go. And our mind is conditioned with delusion and non-delusion. Well, non-delusion is clarity, right? The mind can be clear. In the, right at the beginning of the chapter, Jack Kornfeld brings two of the Buddha's well-known teachings together, quotes from different places in the Buddhist discourses. It says, he says, <clears throat> the Buddha says, there is pleasure and pain, gain and loss, slander and honor, praise and blame. The awakened ones are not controlled by these external things. They will cease as quickly as they arise. If others speak against you, do not be angry, for that will prevent your own inner freedom. Learn to bear the harsh words patiently until they cease. Similarly, 
If they praise you, find out what is false or true and acknowledge the facts. So just like our life in the world has these ebb and flows that, that the Buddha just mentioned, praise and gain, pleasure and pain, gain and our, uh, uh, fame and disrepute, the same thing in our own minds. There's like uh, weather systems with these three wholesome and three unwholesome roots. And we should just learn like uh, the map so as quickly as possible when we remember to be mindful, we just have a sense of what are the influences in the mind. Non-aversion, kindness, or aversion, fear, boredom, irritation, and all the different flavors of aversion. <coughs> so, what do we know about aversion? We should be, by now, experts, right? Think about how many times in our lives we've been irritated, been fearful, anxious, bored, rageful, revengeful, resentful. Living out of that particular pattern where the mind wants to push something away, wants to get rid of something, wants to turn away from something. We should be as familiar with this particular pattern as we are with anything. Because probably nothing has been more common. It's said, I don't know if it's true, I don't know if there's any way to figure out whether it's true, but it makes sense that it would shift over the centuries. But it's said that at the time of the Buddha, um, greed was the more prominent cultural condition tendency of people's minds. And I'm wondering, I don't know, but I'm wondering if maybe aversion is our go-to condition state these days. You know, fear, hatred, irritation, boredom, anxiety. And even though we probably, when we reflect on it, I'm assuming that we'd all be pretty convinced. We could all, I bet with enough time, give a pretty good talk about hatred, anger and aversion not being the way to happiness? I mean, does anybody have any doubt in this reflective place we're in now? Does anybody have any doubt that this is not the way to happiness? I mean, most, I think most religious spiritual traditions say this in some fashion, right? It's kind of basic human common sense. But just even today, even though we, we kind of know that in our bones, how much of the day were we irritated or aversive in some fashion, impatient? I mean, that's a common one, right? We could spend weeks being impatient, lifetimes probably. I mean, just think about how many things were impatient. I mean, what was it today that I was impatient? There's just something that I kind of caught my eye that 
something so ordinary. Oh, I, we're having our kitchen renovated, which can certainly be an irritant. We have a little kitchen in the basement that we're using. It's a gas stove. And, you know, upstairs, in our, we used to be our kitchen, now the war zone, um, you know, we had an electric stove. You turn that burner on, and things would heat up really quickly. But the gas stove downstairs, it takes a lot longer than a gas stove to boil water. I'm assuming that's just always the case. Maybe just this particular stove, I'm not sure. But. And uh, I was just, you know, just kind of like feeling justified, as if that speed, the amount of heat coming out of that flame, was somehow personal. <laughs> you know, like a personal affront to me. There's a story I tell quite a bit, most of you have heard it, but I think it really points this out about somebody rowing across the river, you know, at night, and they're rowing and rowing, and they crash into another boat. And the person rowing gets furious. But that idiot who didn't, you know, get out of his way takes out his flashlight. You idiot, you know, screaming, swearing. And then realizes that the other boat doesn't have anybody in it. It's just sort of floating along on the lake or the river. And he found it really hard to maintain the anger because there's nobody in the boat. And this is how it is. It's like uh, anger depends on having an object, the evil one. You know, without the bad one, the evil one, it's not easy to be angry. So it's just interesting how anger depends on this dualistic or this sense of separation because we have to sort of set ourselves apart from something in order to be angry. We're with love and kindness and patience. It's a unified feeling, isn't it? I mean, real kindness, not kind of a more superficial, romantic love, but a, a, a deep sense of kindness or connection, caring for another or for others. That's a unifying feeling, not an alienating or separated feeling. And that will really help us as we get to know this particular part of the map of aversion and non-aversion, and how just watching, observing, noticing, being interested in the mind's ebb and flows through aversion and non-aversion throughout the day. And noticing the whole edifice that comes with aversion. That we've got to create this whole world. I mean, literally, the mind has to construct this whole world of me and the one I hate, or the one that's irritating me, or the thing I'm impatient with. We have to construct this whole complicated sense of being apart. It seems so easy because we do it so much, you know. But when we really, one of the things you notice when you go on retreat, especially longer retreats, is you see how much work it is to have any particular view. Like even the view, oh poor me, it's just so much work to have that view and to maintain it. We gotta keep maybe you catch sometimes we catch ourselves in the middle of the night when we're awakened from our dreams and and then we're sort of 
in that about to fall asleep place, and but the mind is just spinning because that's what the mind does. And we can get a sense of how much work it is for the mind to maintain whatever drama it's maintaining. Even relatively wholesome dramas take work. But the more toxic the drama, the more work it is. Because by definition, the more self-centered and toxic dramas, they're not, uh, they don't represent things as they are. Suffering is an aberration. I know it feels incredibly consistent, regular, you know, deep, pervasive, but it's a human aberration. It's a human construction. The moment the mind stops constructing the experience of mental suffering, like the suffering of anger, the suffering of craving, the suffering of doubt and confusion, the moment the mind stops constructing it, there is no anger, I mean, there is no suffering, no stress in the mind. The mind is liberated in that moment. Now, isn't that amazing? This will help. This goes back to what I was saying before about remembering that our practice is about the cultivation of happiness. Because if we remember that all I have to do is stop constructing suffering, and I'll be liberated. <laughs> it reminds me, I hadn't thought about this until just now. I'm sure some of you have read the trilogy um, Hitchhiker's Guide to the Universe. And there's a, it's a, just a silly trilogy, but quite beautiful, I thought. Um, and uh, there's a, s a section where one of the main characters, character learns how to fly. And uh, of course, People are interested, like, how did you how did you figure out how to do this? And there are many of these sort of witticisms in this book, and, and his answer is just great. <clears throat> the way you learn to fly is practicing not hitting the ground. And you see, there's there's some crazy wisdom to this. Like, the way to not suffer, you know, is basically the practice of of not creating it. It's like we create the experience of suffering. So it's more about not doing it. Like just don't hit the ground. And this is what makes it hard, too. It's so radically simple that it's really challenging for us. We don't trust it. The arrogant, conditioned mind, because life has been a struggle, you know, and so many things, just in terms of... Uh, you know, having a body that needs to be fed, and needs to poop, and needs to go to sleep, and you know, all these things we have to do for ourselves and then for others who are old or sick or in need of help. It just makes so much sense that overcoming suffering would also be like, you know, building the wall of China or building one of the pyramids or renovating your kitchen or <laughs> getting healthy when you've been sick. I can't tell you how many times I've poured warm, salty water in my nostrils and breathed in steam with eucalyptus. And I mean, I, the thought of sucking another cough drop just kind of makes me nauseous. You know, I've sort of done all the right things. And it just keeps going on and on. 
storm antibiotics, though. <laughs> Doesn't really seem fair. So, you know, we have this expectation that uh, overcoming suffering, or in particular, we're looking at aversion, that going beyond aversion, opening to non-aversion, we just have a sense, like, I remember going to one of my teachers, Joseph Goldstein, and just talking generally, just feeling like it was a real insight when I said to him about just the, what felt like a real insight, like just the almost infinite layers of dukkha, of suffering, in my own mind, as I observed others, as I thought about the world at large, it was like the strands, and the, the interrelated strands that create human ignorance, human suffering, it's so immense, immense, so entangled, so pervasive, past, present, future, you know, and it was just overwhelming, and it felt like a useful insight, but I forget exactly what he said to me, but you know, basically something like, that's just a thought. You know, that's just a thought right now. So it's, a, it's not saying it's a true thought or a false thought, but the, when we see how pervasive aversion is and impatience is and irritation is and wanting to hit back and it ain't fair and self-righteousness, it can feel like there, you know, it's going to take so long to become Mark who doesn't fall into aversive states, fearful states, angry states, hateful states. So long. They're going to have to work so hard. They need so many good therapists and good Dharma teachers. And, you know, four retreats a year isn't going to do it for me. I need to do one of those three-year retreats I read about. Some of the Tibetan students do it. Or something, you know, radical. Something that's going to match what seems like the enormity of the problem. You know, dukkha, aversion, seems so big. You know, when we look at human history, it just seems so much historical evidence for how big anger is, violence is, aggression, sexism, racism, nationalism, classism, you know, all the different ways that we throw people out of our hearts and then justify exploiting them, you know, animals, for example. And then, of course, people start to argue, well, it's just natural to be mean, natural to be violent and aggressive. Dog-eat-dog, dog, that's just how it is. So all of this can just feel so overwhelming. And we lose that, that sort of present moment, alive curiosity about real liberation, real freedom, in this case from aversion. Like, I'll just give you a sense of how it arises so often for me now is, you know, I'll see something like getting really irritated at my wife, who I, I so deeply respect and love. I'm so grateful for her being in my life. But I can get really aversive. And, uh, but now, you know, more and more often, I'll see, you know, that aversion. And that moment of seeing that aversion, what can see, what kind of mind 
what kind of quality of mind can see that kind of aversion? Well, just the quality of forgiveness or the quality of patience or the quality of wisdom, kindness, right? So right away, the heart that can see aversion is already non-aversion. It's that close. You see how easy it is? This is like just about not hitting the ground. It's that easy. Oh, it can't be that easy. You know? Just fall. Just don't hit the ground. And it's the same thing. It's like the aversion is there. It feels so big and dangerous. And we can justify hating our aversion, which is so, when you get a lot of space, it's just so crazy to hate aversion or to hate impatience or to hate our judging mind, our critical mind. So, but, but in that moment, we can. It isn't that far away to just open, to include that impatience, that impatience, that anger. You know, it's like, uh, I would imagine, you know, I, I taught elementary school for a while, and I would imagine parents especially need to learn this. You know, because kids, just genetically probably, they, they learn how to push their parents' buttons to get what they want, basically, right? And so to, to be able to see that irritating child and to not, uh, at least in moments, that get pulled in. So it's like a certain, we need this to survive aversion. We need to realize the heart that can see it with a sense of humor, with a sense of patience, with a sense of forgiveness, with this vast sense of wisdom that understands, my God, this is just this great conditioned thing. I mean, even the planet seems to get angry. So it's not even like human beings. I remember, <clears throat> I told this on Sunday morning, for those of you who are here, but uh, Michelle McDonald Smith, one of my teachers, lives in on Hawaii, and she was on the big island once when the volcano was active. And uh, so there's a place that they could observe from a distance, of course. The, lava flowing out and the smoke and the flames and she was sitting there just taking it in relaxing being mindful and an insight arose this insight that I was kind of pointing to a few seconds ago of just getting that oh I know this experience you know to, to see the earth spewing like that angrily Throwing hot, destructive winds, and and to say, oh yeah, well I know this. Just like we see, kind of sometimes really nasty winds, you know, that kind of pick up the dust and just sort of throw it in our faces, or you know, that or you know the bitterness of the winter at times, or. Seeing the, uh, you know, when a child pets a cat or a dog the wrong way, it was just, <clears throat> isn't it interesting how, even when a dog we know when it 
lifts the hair on the back of its neck. You know, it's like we get. It's angry. You know, it's it's showing irritation. It's saying, you know, I'm about to bite. I find it so compelling, especially when the animal is small enough, like one of those cute little dogs. You know, feel like you're in danger. And just see, you know, all the different manifestations of anger and aggression in these animals. Even, you know, it's interesting, especially at retreat, you know, when you get in this sort of what we call yogi mind, kind of in this sort of altered consciousness, not necessarily good for practice, where you're sort of tripping on your sensitivity, basically. Because things get out of proportion because the mind gets so still. Everything at moments can seem sort of amazingly beautiful and other times amazingly kind of unbearable. But so you're walking in the woods and there's a deer, so amazing, you know, (laughs) wanting to merge with the deer. I mean, I'm kind of making fun of it. Of course, it is beautiful. But the attachment and identification can be a little bit off. Anyway, so this happens so often. It's happened to me and it happens to other people. You know, it's like, well, let's see how close I can get to the deer. We have this amazing, we're having this amazing moment together. You know, I'm sure we'll let me just sort of walk right up to it, you know. And it's true. When you're in a really, really subtle, peaceful place, you can get closer to wild animals than you can when you're in a more superficial, you know, anxious or whatever place. Animals are very sensitive to picking up fear because generally when um, animals are hunting or might cause harm, you know, there's that there's that sort of stench of fear or aggression there. So when you don't have that stench, they're let you get a little closer. Anyway, you know, at some point, even the deer that could look so peaceful. You know, so sublime. The beer, the Buddha, um, sometimes would uh, describe the uh, minds of his monks and nuns uh, as having people uh, as having minds like wild deer. You know, because they, when when you see them, they could be so just seemingly peaceful. Who knows, really? But anyway, you get close enough, and then the deer will, you know, how that hits a foot on the ground. And, you know, it's not like, but it, it, it really delivers the message, doesn't it? You know, I mean, nobody, have you ever heard of anybody being harmed by a deer? But I feel like, okay, I'm not getting any closer. You know? It's sort of like making its aversive, angry point, you know? Leave me alone. I don't like you being this close. Go away. And so again, the point is just about anger is natural. It's not a mistake. It's not something we have to destroy. So in the weeks ahead, you know, be learn to be more and more aware of this map of aversion and non-aversion, the swings between aversion and non-aversion, and all the different flavors. But not to destroy aversion, not to imagine becoming the one who's not averse anymore, you know? that's a setup. I mean, one of the things that's endemic in the spiritual world are people who don't think they're angry anymore. 
I used to think, oh, I'll just tell you another funny story. I once was in India on a pilgrimage and went to a lot of the ashrams and met with this one, uh, a bunch of us going, went together. And, uh, we went, had this audience with this wonderful saintly guy, uh, Swami, in uh, Rishikesh, and uh, <coughs> kind of gave a little Dharma talk. And <coughs> At the end of the Dharma talk, we'd all go off and do our bows to the person. And every once in a while, he'd say something to you. You know, he didn't know us, of course. And uh, and so when I did my bows, he looked at me. He says, uh, you know, something like, "Take care of your anger." <laughs> and I laughed. And, I, laughed and, <laughs> and I, I was I was so sure. This is so funny. I was young. I was so sure that he was wrong. Like, like what is he talking about? Because I did not think of myself as an angry person at all. And outwardly, in a lot of ways, I wasn't a very angry person. I was just really good at disguising it, you know, and keeping it under control. And over the years, I became so much more healthy, but I became more obviously angry. And then later, as my practice matured, more obviously fearful. Because it was the fear that was behind the anger, you know. So kind of being a good person sort of was my protection from the anger. And when I started to own the anger, you know, I could discover the fear underneath. I still have all of the qualities, you know. You know, thinking I need to be the perfect person who doesn't have anger. And being the angry person, being the fearful and defensive person, and sometimes being the one without aversion. So I'll leave it here. Uh, it would be nice to hear from some people. We have about 15 minutes left. Your own experiences with aversion and non-aversion, your own questions you have from the talk tonight or just generally about practice, whatever comes to mind. And if you do speak up, please say your name. So who would like to begin? Yeah, Mike. So is there a place for aversion? You've been talking about anger, so is there a place for anger, and what is it? Well, the place is, it's it's natural place. Now, the question is, is it good that aversion is destructive? No, it's not good that our aversion, when acted out, when we're identified, attached to it, causes great destruction in the world. That's not good. But aversion is just aversion. Fear is just fear. Anger is just anger. So the question is, what is a human being to do when anger arises, when impatience arises? And to start to explore that. And where or how do we find power without being angry? You know? And maybe we can speak up without being angry. <coughs> if you read, if those of you who are following along in Jack's book, The Wise Heart, know that uh, he tells a story of having someone renovate his house. I think maybe it was even a kitchen renovation. And the guy was doing like three or four jobs at the same time. And they were going to go overseas, and the, and the work had to get done before they left. And he just wasn't getting it done. And finally, Jack Hartfield realized, I just got to let this guy have it. 
you know, and he yelled at him and swore. And the guy said to him, oh, I guess you really need this done. And the next day, of course, the full crew was there to get the work done. So there are, there are some places in life, just culturally, that demand loud voices. I learned this working with teens and preteens um, in the school system. I was a behavior specialist in an inner city school. And I, I learned slowly. At first, I was just angry at them. And then I learned to be, uh, to sort of raise my voice without being angry, to really just see it as a tool. And uh, it was really wonderful. To, it was actually liberating. To, and, and I see this now both with Wynn, my wife, and me, that when we have arguments, instead of feeling like we shouldn't be ar arguing, that actually we can we can get to really heated places, and like and, and it's really liberating. It's like uh, it's like we're able to sort of express ourselves and to sort of move our bodies and raise our voices, but uh, not be trying to harm each other or or. Uh, somehow understanding when we are trying to harm each other that that's what we're doing and that we don't really believe it. That we're doing it, but we don't really believe it. And to come out the other end. And this is the thing, a lot of, probably a lot more relationships are destroyed by people not being honest and being able to express what they're feeling than are destroyed because people do express themselves fully and honestly. I mean, clearly, it's problematic at that end, too. But we need to learn how to let energy move. And often the more explosive and destructive anger comes from not learning how to be with anger. So then it just explodes out, like literally like a volcano, and it's really destructive. But if we're sort of in touch with the heat of resistance, the heat of not liking things as they are, and working with it and experimenting with it and learning how to sort of appreciate that life energy. It's just life energy. What else could it be? It's basic information. So what is it saying? What is this strong emotion saying that's of value to hear? How can it inform my life, my choices? Thanks, Mike. Other thoughts that come to mind? Hi. Yeah. I'm Amy. Um, I always think about this in relation to, like, you know, kind of social justice stuff, where you look at something and you're like, but that's just wrong. <laughs> yeah. You know? Like, you know, I want to challenge this person's racism or whatever, you know? And you kind of need a version to, I mean, if you're not feeling aversive to that sort of thing, and you're not, you know, having a problem with it, you know, it sort of goes on. Or, yeah, I mean, I know yeah, there's yeah, complications yeah. about this, but I'd like to hear you speak to well, we might, aversion. Yeah. yeah, we might need a better vocabulary. So we have a word like movement, like the movement of the heart. Instead of saying, I'm angry, your racism makes me angry, or you're an idiot because you're racist or, you know, what, what, whatever we might feel. It's just, not, it's just not okay. Meaning, I can't accept you. Instead of that, you know, 
is there a way to let that movement of the heart be a movement, like really move into action, into thought, into word, without causing harm? And I think there's an important distinction that sometimes what we do will sting, will hurt, but we're not ultimately harming that person. So sometimes our words will really hurt the person, but pain is not always bad. We've learned a lot from pain. I mean, we wouldn't be able to survive if we didn't if we didn't have pain as a teacher, right? So sometimes our words, uh, not because we want to cause pain for that person, but because we trust the movement of the heart. We trust that it's coming from non-aversion, non-greed, non-delusion. So we let it move because it feels good. When our intention, when our movements are coming from greed, aversion, or delusion, the three unwholesome roots, they are always characterized by constriction. They always hurt. Any words, any actions, any thoughts that are flowing from aversion, from greed, and from delusion will always hurt and always cause harm. But that's not true with movement that's from non-aversion, non-greed, and non-delusion. And so we just have to experiment. Like try to respond to that person who you see as being racist. Feel that movement and be mindful of all the ways that that movement could get channeled into aversion, into judgment. You know, and see if you can find a way to let it move a different channel. Maybe not as big because it's, it's not, it doesn't have as much momentum, but another channel where that can go. And that's really what it means to be mindful in the moment. You know, it feels like we're just restraining ourselves, but it's not about restraining ourselves. It's really about probing. You know, trying. And then you see, oh no, that didn't feel good. That was just a more subtle kind of aversion. You know, I was just saying, I hate you in a more politically correct way. And, um, you were probably raised by a bunch of racists. You know, you can't help, you can't help it. Or something like that, some condescending, belittling attitude that feels like we're being kind, can masquerade as kindness. But it's still very much throwing that person out of our heart, not understanding how it's possible to be racist. You know, we have to understand our own aversion, our own fear, in order to understand other people's fear and aversion. Thanks, Amy. Other thoughts? Have maybe a couple more? Yeah, Brenda. Um, you just kind of touched on something for me um, when you're talking about um, you know, the feeling of anger and the intent of anger, but your intent is content. Intently, uh, I don't want to say what I want to say, but yeah. you know what I mean? If you're, yeah. if you're intending to be angry and use anger, you know, the difference between that and just having anger. You know, anger can come up and you don't have to move your intention to do something with the anger. You can just you know, talk a little bit about the intention. Yeah, no, I, what you said I think is really good. Because you're you're talking about it more viscerally, which I think is useful. So, you know, when that movement arises, we see something, we experience something that triggers aversion, what we're calling aversion. That movement to want things to be other than they are, to want something to cease, to end, to move away from something. So we feel that movement, 
And as you said, Brenda, when you identify, when the mind identifies with it, takes it personally, <clears throat> then it's getting constricting. It's getting tight. And then we have a personal agenda to sort of... This is going back to social justice. Like When we see injustice and we take it personally, like those greedy corporate heads shouldn't be doing what they're doing. They're evildoers. And the mind's constricted in that view. Then we can justify all kinds of actions that can be quite destructive. But can we let that movement be the movement, but without the identification? So we're feeling that movement. We see something that's repulsive, reprehensible. We feel it. We see it and feel it. We're moved, moved by what we see and feel, you know. And but we're not going to get identified. So how can that movement? Uh, so we're not preventing the movement from going into action, but just not the identification. So love can be just as powerful. We can do something out of love, but love doesn't take a constricted mind state. Uh, generosity doesn't take a constricted mind state. To care, to want to take care of, to want to make the world a beautiful place. For you too, you know, for the person that we're going to try to act in some way to stop or to inform. You know, I want this world to be a beautiful, wholesome place for everybody, including you. I know what anger feels like. I know what fear feels like. I know what grief feels like. It's not good for you. You know, so I care about that. I want the world to be filled with people without greed. <coughs> yeah, so that identification is really at the heart of it. Any last thoughts before we end the evening? Take a few seconds then and let go of the words. Take a breath or two together. Willing to be a fearless student of aversion, all of its manifestations. <coughs> and dedicated to living in a way leading to peace and freedom from suffering in our hearts and in the world. So may this be so. And thanks everyone for coming tonight. Thanks to Jerry and Julian. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.